0: Welcome to the Pennsylvania Peer Support Coalition podcast with your hosts, Becky Schultz and David Measle.
1: Hi, welcome to the PAPSC podcast. I'm Becky Schultz and I use they, them pronouns.
0: And I'm Dave Measel. I'm the executive director of the Pennsylvania Peer Support Coalition and I use he, him pronouns. We're happy to welcome you to another episode of the Pennsylvania Peer Support Coalition podcast. Today, we have a guest from the Pennsylvania Mental Health Consumers Association. Her name is Kathy Quick, and I'm going to let Kathy introduce herself.
2: Hi, my name is Kathy Quick, and I am the Executive Director at PMHCA, Pennsylvania Mental Health Consumers Association. And I'm really glad to be here with you all today.
0: Thank you, Kathy. We're excited to have you. Obviously, Well, not obviously, perhaps to our listeners, but obviously to Becky and I, we have a a fairly nice relationship with you. We've worked with you on a number of different projects and PMHCA and and the Pennsylvania Peer Support Coalition have a pretty close relationship and uh, historical ties as well. Do you want to talk a little bit about what PMHCA is? Sure. PMHCA
2: has been in existence. It's a 501c3 nonprofit organization that's been in existence since 1986. And if we all think about mental health back in 1986, I I talk about this a lot because I think it's so important. We were in a, a point in time in the system where we didn't really recognize recovery. We didn't really help people understand that there was a different way Hospitals were, people lived in hospitals um, because they didn't think they could go out and, and live in a community. So I say that because I think that PMHCA played a really key role in Pennsylvania in helping kind of break down those barriers, helping get people back into the community, understand recovery. And I think that's done because everybody at PMHCA is a person with lived experience in the system we have all had our own experiences and and taste of what that is. Um, we all have our own struggles that we continue to, to you know experience, but the goal is to just move forward and continue breaking down barriers and reducing stigma and helping people understand what recovery is and encouraging people that we can all get better. We can all do different things.
1: I know you have a particular interest in kind of like trauma-based education or trauma awareness or informed practices, how does that tie into kind of the community integration piece, like trying to get people to stay out of the hospital? Just, I'm asking that question because like, I might have been one of those people in 1986. Like I may have been trapped in a hospital for years, but our system has changed since then. And I think trauma-informedness kind of goes around that and, and helps support that. So I just wanted to ask that question.
2: Yeah, I think it's an important question to ask. And I think it's important for us to recognize the role that trauma plays in mental health, behavioral health, substance use, all of that. I can speak from personal experience and say that, you know, I experienced a lot of adversity when I was a kid, which led to a lot of really poor coping skills as a teenager. And, you know, I attribute a lot of that to the trauma that I experienced. And so I think if we don't recognize trauma and we don't understand how it impacts pretty much everything we do, then I think we're missing a really vital component of how we can change the system and be more understanding of what people actually need. I don't know if that helps Becky, but that's kind of, I think it's like the, the, a key to understanding what we need to do differently in our system so that we can really reach people.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think I'm just, kind of answering my own question too, by saying, I think that when we focus on trauma and allow people to actually be open about that and process it and work through it, that allows a lot more trust in the community so that Mm -hmm. we can stay in it because it, a lot of it is fear-based when you're trapped in the hospital for a really long time. It's like, is this person going to be safe in the community? Are they going to feel safe? And a lot of that does have to do with having experienced some pretty severe stuff. So yeah, yeah. thanks. I also think you brought up a good point point in understanding system
2: trauma and how the our helping system sometimes isn't helping and is often can be traumatic for individuals to be stuck and not feel like they have any power and control mm-hmm. or are over their lives it it really can be a very seriously traumatic experience and i think we we have looked we have overlooked that for a very long time system trauma
0: so does pmhca have any programs where they help uh, advocate for individuals uh, regarding trauma Dave? Uh, regarding anything yeah they're if they're struggling with something that's going on within the system do you advocate at, at an individual level or just at kind of a system level
2: We have a bunch of workshops, if that's helpful um, in answering your question, that kind of goes through self-stigma. We talk about stigma all the time, right? And that our systems are stigmatizing and there's ways that we're, you know, when you think of somebody with a mental illness, there's a a stigma associated with that. And our philosophy is until we begin to really effectively address the, the way we think of ourselves, and that internal stigma, that self stigma that we have, we can't really ever effectively diminish or um, remove. You know, community stigma. If I believe that I am less than because I have a mental illness, then I'm not really going to be out there fighting real hard for other people to treat me better because I feel like I deserve it. So, if we can help kind of raise awareness of the one of the key building blocks of being able to advocate for yourself is how you think about yourself then i think we're you know we're starting to get somewhere so we have a workshop that we do with folks that talks a lot about self stigma and how we kind of can reduce that how can we really address it understand it and start to make steps towards not not thinking that way anymore that's probably my biggest one we have a couple of other workshops that we do too and i think that this is kind of falls in line with your with your question we went out and interviewed people who survived a suicide attempt. Um, there was nine individuals across our entire state who shared some of their stories as suicide attempt survivors. And the, the idea was to, to put that voice in the suicide prevention ring too. Um, we don't hear from attempt survivors very often. And so what is it? from your experiences that people need. What did you get that was helpful? What didn't you get that would have been helpful? How can we kind of work together as a system and really um, help reach people who are feeling that way? And so I think that's a, an advocacy. I don't, I don't know if it's a helping people advocate for themselves, but it's definitely directed at advocating with individuals.
1: Yeah. And that's a topic we've touched on a little bit in the past on this podcast is just suicide prevention. And I think efforts to stop suicide completely are hard to have people accept because I think people believe that there's going to be a certain number of people who die that way. And I think that as a field, we know that there's a lot of opportunities between thinking about that and making that decision that we can intervene or supports in their natural life can intervene. And I think that you guys do a lot of good work around like QPR and getting people, you know, prepared to have those conversations.
2: I started climbing on my soapbox in this area because I feel like we talk about having autonomy all the time. And I think that sometimes our focus in suicide prevention was started by lost survivors I mean like i'm not and i think they've done absolutely wonderful work in raising awareness and helping people understand and putting suicide in conversations where it really needs to be but i really just think we needed to oh op- we need to now open the door a little bit wider because there's a lot of guilt and shame and stigma that surrounds somebody who's attempted to take their life or those feelings and people often don't want to talk about it there's a lot of reasons why that happens one if you say you're thinking about that what's likely to happen is you end up in a in a a crisis system that it maybe can be traumatizing in some ways and and unhelpful or you know it can be helpful too but you know we need to open the door and really look at how do why are people feeling this way and how can we acknowledge that these are legitimate feelings you know, while still acknowledging that maybe I know you feel like you don't want to be here anymore, but how can we, how can we find a different solution? How can we work together? But we have to talk to attempt survivors and we have to start working on that stigma as a community. Yeah, that's
1: an amazing project. I'm really excited to actually see it. I haven't seen it yet, but it sounds amazing.
0: I think that this is a opportunity for peers and for people with lived experience to really make a difference as well. Like you were saying, Kathy, I think other types of professionals might be really quick to jump to, we need to hospitalize this person or, or you know, take some drastic measures. And in many cases, that can actually make things worse, whereas a peer or someone who has lived experience can talk to the person and share lived experience and, and you know, share some of that uh, shared experience and shared feelings and thoughts and whatnot. and. and They don't necessarily have to jump directly to the most drastic measures.
2: I know there's a lot of um, talk across the state about having peer-run crisis residentials and how awesome that concept is where you don't have to jump right into a hospital. You can go stay at a place that's a little homier that has peer support in it, you know, specific peer support, you know, exactly what you just said, Dave, folks who've experienced that, And can can help and kind of create that connection. Not everybody has to go right to a hospital and, you know, jump into to that. There's we need levels of care um, in the crisis world.
1: Yeah. And there's nothing that kills hope, like being told you're going to deal with this feeling for the rest of your life. That's how I feel about it. It's a little bit stressful for somebody who is actively suicidal or just coming out of that for doctors to say, hey, you're going to have major depressive disorder maybe for the rest of your life and you should probably continue to take this medication for the rest of your life to prevent these feelings. And a lot of times, as we know, maybe those feelings are coming from a legitimate place where changes can be made and there doesn't have to be the same life circumstances for that person forever. So I think that's like a huge part of it is like we as peers can see a little bit more of the situation and problem solve things as opposed to my only route at a hospital as a doctor is medication. Right. And then some group therapy, but it's, it's very limited. Whereas like peer run crisis residences can actually do what respites do basically and Mm -hmm. allow people the time and space to kind of figure their own stuff out. I think that's really cool. And I did just hear they're starting one in Philadelphia based on the one in Danville. So I think that's pretty awesome.
2: That's pretty awesome. I think you raised a good point too, Becky. I know I was one of those people. I'm one of the people in our video. And I, I, my attempt was when I was a teenager. But, you know, the project is called I Didn't Die But. And we got that because we were talking and I said, like, I didn't die that day, but I spent decades being sick decades with passive suicidal ideation on a daily basis and not reach and i tried different therapies medications all that stuff nothing seemed to help that it almost just became the way i was if you know what i'm saying like it just seemed like that's how i was as a person and then i i sort of in the last few years of life got connected with peers and started talking about things and how how i've been and how i've been affected and how things work for other people and really that's what turned a corner for me i don't have those thoughts anymore so it really has changed and it's not always you know i got to take this medication or do this or be in a hospital like i think we we need to kind of spread the value of that peer to peer relationship everywhere we can because it's definitely a support to the clinical system that we have in place
1: yeah and that hope that we are able to like plant the seed of as Jason always talks about, that like meeting somebody in recovery can plant that seed of hope that recovery is possible, and people need that in in crisis. they need to see somebody who has been through it and says, it's okay, it's gonna be okay. Mm -hmm. And I actually know that from experience, like that makes a huge impact on people, whether they, whether like people at the top who are looking at statistics, believe it or not, it really is like a spiritual loss of hope crisis to me. And I think that getting, you know, getting to the root of that is more important a lot of times than trying to understand what's going on with someone biochemically, But there, I mean, there's definitely a benefit to that. I'm not saying that that's not helpful um, or couldn't, like, lift somebody through a situation that may end their life otherwise. I just think that, you know, long term, when we're talking about recovery, it is so important to be able to say, hey, you know, I've been there, like you're saying. So really Mm -hmm. appreciate that.
0: Kathy, I'm going to change the topic a little bit, not completely, but I'm just interested to hear some of some more of your story and how you came to be where you're at now. You just shared that you did attempt suicide at 14. So I'm interested to hear how you went from that 14-year-old to now being the executive director of the statewide Mental Health Consumer Association in Pennsylvania.
2: Um, It wasn't deliberately.
0: <laughs> so few things in that. life are
2: it seems like dave i just followed like the road you make a choice you you decide on something and you figure out is this really what i want to do so from that day like i did i did survive but i made a lot of really poor choices i used a lot of very very negative coping skills so started smoking pot pretty much every day escalated into doing all sorts of different you know, street drugs, and settled on probably alcohol as a staple. For me, that was something that I did nearly every day for a very long time, from when I was about 13 or 14 to I got married. And the only thing that we had in common really was our drug and alcohol use. So when I got pregnant, we separated very quickly after I had the baby. Um, my daughter was probably about six months old. That was what Incentivized me to stop using drugs and drinking. I got pregnant, and I knew that that was very dangerous, so I stopped. I'm not gonna sugarcoat this and say I got clean and I, I entered recovery at that moment because I didn't. I just stopped. I knew I didn't want to do that. After I had her, we separated, so I needed to figure out how I was going to pay for myself and her and take care of everything. And I went back to college. And that's when I got my bachelor's degree in criminal justice. But, you know, she was, I got remarried. And a couple of years into that marriage, I started drinking again. Somehow I thought it would be okay. You know, <laughs> I'm, I, never, I didn't realize I had a problem. So I started drinking again. I would say that my daughter was probably six or seven. And then it escalated pretty quickly to every weekend, a couple of beers after work all that sort of thing. And then I got clean. Again, I got sober. I wanted to have a surgery. I wanted to have gastric bypass surgeries and I needed to be sober. So I got sober. We moved to Arizona. It was a long story. And then I, um, I started working in the drug and alcohol field. I didn't start drinking. I didn't start drinking again after the surgery But when we moved very quickly after the surgery, I I started working in drug and alcohol. And I realized after looking at all the criteria that they give you, whoa, that's me. (laughs) I have a problem. So that was kind of how I entered sobriety. And I continued to educate myself. And that was probably one of my biggest wellness tools that I used throughout that whole period, Dave, that I didn't really realize was a wellness tool but I I, I had no self-esteem. So when I could do well in school, that helped me build myself up. If you, if you know what I mean, that helped me feel good about who I was because I could get a good grade or whatever. So it was one of my biggest wellness tools was to go to, to school and that's how I ended up kind of getting into therapy. It sort of makes sense. I've had all those experiences and now it made sense to want to help others. So I got a bachelor's degree in criminal justice, but I had a master's degree in social work because I could help people. And then that just one thing led to another and I ended up doing a couple of different things and then saw the job posting for PMHCA and thought, I kind of always conducted myself in that peer-to-peer manner. I would always share, even the like, you know, professional boundaries and all of that stuff. But I, I always felt that that was important. And I really... Even as an outpatient therapist or working with an SUD or whatever, it was really easy to talk to people about my experiences too in a way that would be meaningful for them. So finding recovery and peer and this whole world here was miraculous to me and it, it never looked back. It's been awesome to understand how that connection can actually help people. Me too. I feel it every time I connect with somebody and things like that.
1: Yeah, that's something I've struggled with the idea of in the past is, is, you know, being a therapist and then having to, at least under clinical supervision, not share as much. And that's, I've talked about that before on the podcast on our little bonus episode that I I struggle with that idea and I don't think I'm going to finish my social work degree because of it. But I think that it's really cool that you've come to this work through that process process in that pathway because you have <clears throat> understanding of how the system functions in that capacity and then you can help to advocate that things improve and i think that that's you're in a unique position to do that based on your experience so i really like that and i realize i'm not asking a lot of questions i'm making a lot of statements in this episode <laughs> so i apologize for that but i do hope that you know being reinforcing of of you and your role in, in our system right now is is helpful um, in some way to people. I like that you know you have been kind of shaping. In I know that there's a whole team at PMHCA, but you've been like shaping the way things are are done. And I think that professional aspect along with the peer aspect really lends itself to an organization that serves the needs of mental health consumers. Consumers in quotes in Pennsylvania. Thanks cuz I really appreciate that. And I think, you know, I have to tell you
2: this. And I thought about this yesterday I was talking to somebody and it occurred to me that I I actually got my doctorate in 2020, right? I finished my doctorate in social work in in the middle of the pandemic. I finally I finally sat down and finished it, <laughs> my dissertation. But for the for about a year I didn't even like really make a thing of it. I just sort of put DSW behind my name and was like, yeah, I I did it because I did it for me. Right. I did it so that I could that was my final stepping stone, I guess, or whatever you want to call it about using it as a wellness tool education. And now I tell everybody and I put it on my signature and all of that stuff, not because I want people to be like, oh, Kathy's a doctor. No, because I want people to understand that you can do whatever you set your mind to. We can be doctors. We can be those professional people. We can be anything we want if we put our mind to it and we say, you know, this is this is our goal. And it wasn't easy. I had to figure out ways to get over whatever problems were going on and stuff like that. You got to work, uh, you know, for anything. But it's, you can achieve the things that you want to. Your experiences, your illness, those things aren't, they shouldn't be the only barrier that you have. You can overcome that stuff and you can do what you want to do. And that's why I put it on there. I just want to tell people you could do it. I did it. I'm not special. You could do it too, you know?
0: And that, that's kind of why I asked the question, Kathy, because I think it's important for each of us to share our stories. And your story is really inspirational. Again, to go from where you were at as a 14-year-old to where you are now is really powerful. And I think it's important for people to hear these stories, not just people who are peers and maybe struggling with their own challenges, but the wider general public need to hear those stories as well, because these stories help fight stigma.
2: Yeah, I think we struggle right now a lot with mental health. Stigma is that folks who have a mental illness are violent. Like it's all over the news all the time. Anytime there's, you know, some kind of mass violence event kind of thing that happens, it's, oh, well they have a mental illness, which leads people to think that, you know, everybody who has an illness is, is violent or there's a potential for violence. So beating that stigma and kind of not perpetuating that is a really big um, goal of ours. We have to figure out how can we help people understand that the vast majority by far of individuals who have mental illness are not violent. They're not aggressive maybe towards themselves, but that's that's the, that's pretty much it.
0: So coming from your perspective as the executive director of PMHCA, what do you see as some of the major challenges facing the mental health delivery system currently?
2: Where do you start?
0: <laughs> is that a loaded question? <laughs> yeah.
2: I would think that the most common answer you'll get to that question is um, our workforce shortages. And, you know, I don't know what caused that, but in every industry you're in, there's workforce shortages. But it's particularly um, harmful, I think, right now in mental health. And I think I'll follow that up with, as a system, it would be really beneficial if we could figure out how to integrate all parts of recovery and all parts of treatment And help people have choices, you know, those are things that, you know, the work that I've done in the system, a lot of times it comes down to who has an opening, a bed, who has space instead of what's going to be best for this person. And I think that that's something that, you know, workforce shortage doesn't help that. But if we could maximize people's choices in different treatment modalities and methods and Providers, so that they really felt like they had choices, I think people would be more invested and I think it would be super helpful.
1: Yeah, I'm glad that you say that. I mean, it's been the number one complaint that I have ever heard personally as somebody working in mental health that there's always turnover. Mm-hmm. Like, they, The people in services, including myself, never see a therapist for more than like two years that we get along with and think we're making progress with, you know, it's, it's, and it's the same with peers and case managers and doctors, like there's so much change that it's very, I don't want to say destabilizing. I think I would maybe use the word harmful a little bit for, for people to lose those relationships so often. Yeah. And then have to re-explain and form an understanding of where they're coming from. Like, I've been through that process so many times where you have to explain, this is the trauma I've been through. These are the symptoms I've experienced. This is where I'm at with that now. Yep. And that process is painful and it's not necessary. And we have to do it over and over and over again.
0: I, I, think I just it- experienced that uh, recently. I don't have a psychiatrist one getting in with a psychiatrist is nearly impossible right now because of these shortages. So it's my general practitioner general practitioner doctor that uh, prescribes my uh, mental health medication. and I'd been seeing the same doctor for like 14 years and then she left the practice and left uh, uh, family medicine and had to start all over with a new doctor and that doctor only lasted for less than a year and then she left and now i've just started with a new one but because they're prescribing my mental health medication it's like i have to i have to develop rapport with these people and it's so difficult not having that consistency i had built such a great relationship with my first doctor over 14 years and it's it's frustrating to start over
2: for sure i mean that and the fact that There's not an option to go to a psychiatrist, you know, or to like, I think we don't have enough choices either. And then when you face that, and I I think it's even more than harmful, Becky, I think sometimes it's, it's, it's so disheartening. Mm -hmm. I gotta tell you're opening the door, man, you're letting all this pain out and all these experiences out with individuals and they you get that trusting relationship and gone. (laughs) It's very disheartening.
1: Yeah, I will tell a funny story about this, though. Really quickly. And I hope she doesn't mind. But my significant other just had a therapist who decided to leave without telling her at all. So she found out and she made her next appointment an in-person appointment and told the receptionist not to tell the therapist because she hadn't told her that she was leaving. And she showed up in the appointment and basically like reamed her out for doing that. It was like, you can't do this to people. Like, we formed a relationship Like, why would you not tell me that you're leaving? This is ridiculous. But it was pretty funny that she did that to me. Like, (laughs) actually
2: unethical and um, goes against everything in your code of ethics to do something like that. At least, yeah, it's
0: awful. Code of ethics. So, what's in the future for PMHCA?
2: Well, this year in particular, our focus is on promoting recovery and trying to re-engage recovery in our state. And some of what we want to do is um, support CSP, growth, development, communication. We've had a long relationship with CSP. CSP stands for Community Support Program. It is a system of communication where All stakeholders in a community get together within the mental health and behavioral health system. Typically, it's been like county. So each county has a CSP or has had a CSP. Some don't anymore. So it would be folks like providers, county government, nonprofits in the area, any other programs in the area who want to do different things, plus individuals with lived experience in that system all get together. And the whole idea is to, you know, learn things. There's educational components within CSP. There's activities that happen for folks who come to CSP. Plus, there's also the idea of looking at the the community mental health system and identifying barriers or maximizing benefits, you know, whatever, whatever way you look at it. So if each county had a CSP, a lot of them still do, Then there's four regional CSPs um, that try to collect data and get information and kind of represent their counties that are in their region. And then PMHCA's role is that statewide role to be the mouthpiece to develop an advocacy agenda with everyone um, and try to figure out how can we move forward? What do we need to change? I think it's especially important with the administration change right now. Our new governor brings a lot of hope. He has been involved with CSP in his home county. He understands what that, the value of CSP. So we're really hopeful that we can kind of continue to grow and develop CSP. That's on my short-term agenda for this year is to work hard to reinvigorate that system. Alongside of that, just working to develop what do we need to change? How can we address some of the barriers in the system?
0: What are some other things that PMHCA is going to be working on in the future?
2: I think that the whole idea with the reinvigoration of CSP was to develop like an advocacy agenda. What is it that people are experiencing? How can we help represent that statewide? We do a lot of representation at, you know, legislators responding to different ideas on legislation. Um, We go to different state committees, things like that, to try to make sure that people are being represented at every level. And we need that information from different places like CSP. It's not the only one, but it's part of it. And some of the other things that we continue to do is offer different peer to peer trainings. Those are very important to us. And by peer to peer all of our trainings are really about discussing whatever the subject matter is and bringing up personal <clears throat> personal um, pieces and relating it back to real people, real individuals, real situations. Some of them that I'm thinking about kind of goes with the conversation we've had already, which is we have some trauma trainings that we do, which are very personal and very peer-oriented. And we want to continue to expand and, and grow in that in that area we brought our one of the individuals who's been doing our forensic peer training for many years um, on board full-time last year to kind of grow and develop our training program Um, he does an awesome awesome job ethan frost is his name and he's um, done a a magnificent job in the few months that he's been working there Um, some of the other things that we really need to do is get out and do some of our workshops with individuals. So we're really going to make an effort to get out and try to help people value themselves differently through our our self-stigma workshop and that I didn't die, but video project that we have. And we really, I think, want that message that we always want to put forward about education and advocating for themselves and then promote recovery because we can get better and by, you know, helping people understand the idea of self-stigma and how you think of yourself is a, is a big way on how we can get better and how we can kind of progress in our system and learn how to how to advocate for ourselves. So those are some of the big things that we want to do this year. There's some other projects and ideas and things floating around out there right now, but those are our big pushes is really to to re-engage recovery in Pennsylvania In some ways I feel like our recovery movement has been a little diminished and I really think we need to get out there and talk a lot more about that and help people understand recovery concepts figure out ways we can infuse our system and our clinical system with understanding that these two things work together and how can we how can we help people understand that and and develop a system that's respectful of all of that. So that's kind of, I think our big, our big push at this point.
0: Yeah. I know that you and I have had discussions about this before and I've had discussions with other people about this as well. I feel like in Pennsylvania, we had a really big push for promoting recovery and recovery oriented services for a long time but it feels like more recently we may have backslid a little bit.
2: I think so, too.
0: And that we're losing some of our focus on recovery and we're, we're slipping back into a more clinical type mindset. And so I think it's really important for organizations like yours and the Pennsylvania Peer Support Coalition to step up and do what we can to make sure that recovery isn't lost. Mm-hmm.
2: I agree with that. I think some of it is, has been related to COVID, Dave. I think what happened was, you know, we had this pandemic and then everything just happened so fast and we haven't, we've focused a lot on just build the system, (laughs) you know, especially now that everybody's kind of back out kind of doing things and these workforce shortages, you know, and, and there's, there's this, federal government has put, has infused a lot of money into all sorts of systems. So people just want to put the money at things. And, and it really has come down to let's just shore up the system that we have and recovery seems to have been forgotten. I don't know how real that is. That's, you know, I I was a commissioner on the behavioral health commission and that's kind of how I, how I got to that feeling. Like I, I talked about recovery. We talked about different ideas, but You know, a lot of people just wanted to focus on let's let's shore up and bring in clinicians to fill spaces and let's shore up and and bring in psychiatrists. and, And I get that that's needed, but I think there was opportunities to bring recovery into play in more areas. And they didn't really even understand what I was saying or the value of what, you know, those concepts could have been.
0: Certainly, it is incumbent upon, again, our organizations to make sure that recovery is promoted. But I think a lot of it comes from the top down as well. Mm -hmm. And I think we had some really recovery-oriented state leadership in the past as well that we may have lost a little bit of over the past number of years. And you mentioned this with the new administration coming in, There's some new leadership coming in at uh, at, in state offices as well. I'm really hoping and I'm keeping my fingers crossed that we'll have some more support at the state level as well with promoting recovery and really reinvigorating recovery concepts.
2: I have every finger I own crossed that that's what we start doing and we start having some of those conversations and that individuals understand that those individuals who make decisions understand that recovery and building recovery is, is overwhelmingly important. It's how people get better. It provides hope, Becky, right? <laughs> that's not- yeah. Recovery is hope. And in a system that's clinically oriented and that's all you get, it's hard to find the hope. I'm not saying people are doing bad work. I'm just saying it's harder to find the hope. The hope is in seeing somebody else succeed well, if they can do it, I can do it, I can just do it this way instead you know so we we really need to to push as hard as possible, Dave, <laughs> so that we can bring those conversations back to the forefront. I am hopeful we have also a new administration and there was an enormous amount of work that was done to kind of bring the call for change, concept back, there's a document that's out there waiting for approval that has a lot of really key components in it that our state should look towards to kind of reinvigorate our system. And so I'm hopeful that that we kind of take a look at that that draft document and kind of adopt it as our statewide, this is our direction. It would be awesome.
1: Yeah, I think we need more people like you, Kathy and Dave, trying to Maybe this is controversial to say, but trying to make things a little more difficult for the people who don't believe that recovery is possible because they have the driving seat a lot of times. And it's important for us, like you did at the behavioral health commission to to actually say, speak up and say, you know, recovery is possible. I am here. We need to encourage this in other people, not just keep them warehouse somewhere in a system that doesn't support their need to be to have a meaningful and purposeful life that they feel good about. I think that's something that you guys both promote in your roles and I think we need more people that are willing to kind of dive into that conflict in a way that's productive and meaningful.
2: I think we need to do the top down like you guys said but I think we also need to address the bottom up if you will we need to help encourage people that you vote. Vote for people who are listening, who understand, who want to promote recovery concepts. We need to get that out there too. We have a, a huge number of voters in our midst that we if we you know really started talking to each other and really started listening to what legislators are saying, they're the folks with the money and they're the folks who make the decisions. So if we could, you know, influence them with you know, letters or whatever we need to do, I mean, I think that's, that's like kind of attacking it from both ends, if you want to call it that.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I agree. I was always taught that power comes from two places, either money or numbers. And we don't necessarily have the money, but we definitely have numbers. Mm -hmm. And it's just a matter of kind of organizing those numbers. And that's one of the things that we've started trying to do at the coalition with starting our advocacy committee and and starting to identify what are the things that we want to fight for and advocate for and and promote. Mm -hmm. And I I think it's important to point out, too, that that you kind of took a lead in creating another group, kind of pulling together community organizations to do exactly what you, you just said, work together on common interests Do you want to talk about that for a second?
2: You can go ahead. You were on it. You're part of it.
0: (laughs) You started it. (laughs) So Kathy and a few other people started a group and we call ourselves the PA Advocates for Whole Health and Wellness. And it is community organizations like the Pennsylvania Peer Support Coalition, Pennsylvania Mental Health Consumers Association, NAMI. Mm -hmm. What are some of the other groups that are part of it?
2: Uh, Youth Move PA. Disability Rights, Pennsylvania, MHAPA, Pennsylvania Parent and Family Alliance. Also individuals who are just advocates themselves and very interested in this work,
0: too. And so we all come together as a group and we identify shared interests. And as opposed to working individually towards these shared interests, we work as a whole group. Again, coming back to that concept of there's power in numbers. So I did want to point that out that Kathy was instrumental in in creating that group, along with a couple of other uh, individuals. But that has formed and and it has become a pretty powerful voice for for change mm. uh, for community organizations.
2: I like to think so. You're talking about advocacy and peer organizations across the state, most of which are statewide. The regional CSPs also have representatives at our meetings, so each of the regions. So collectively, CSP is represented statewide as well. It started out, Dave, as frustration in a meeting. We were meeting to talk about hospital boarding and to come up with recommendations for the House of Representatives and what to do about the problem of hospital boarding. This was pre-COVID and it was frustrating for us who with lived experience at the one corner of the table, we were just frustrated with things and we started talking and started the idea of just getting together and supporting each other. And then that support turned into some combined advocacy efforts here and there, and now, what have we been meeting, Dave? Almost two years now, and um, now we're like really, almost, almost legitimate. <laughs> we we actually, you know, have a document that governs how we do things, and we selected some leadership representatives, and and it and it really creates a powerful voice in the state. If you add all of us together. When we agree on on a on a topic or a need an advocacy um agenda item, we really do have a lot of power behind that voice now, and I think that's really important.
0: Well, we're coming up on the end of our podcast, so I do want to offer you an opportunity to share anything else that you want to share kathy
2: so one of the last things I wanted to share with you guys is that pmhca hasn't had a conference in 11 years we haven't really had the money to do the conference but this year we were just like you know what we're tired of that as an excuse we're gonna find it we'll figure out how to pay for this (laughs) wish us luck because we're on our we're on our way now we do have a conference scheduled for in person october 3rd and 4th our theme is keys to recovery so we're going right back to our recovery roots and starting there They're using our five keys to recovery as our our kind of theme. And we have some keynote speakers already lined up that are long, long, long advocates of recovery. So at this point, we have Gina Calhoun, Matthew Federici, and David Nelson from the Copeland Center. Joan Ernie is going to come and be a keynote speaker as well. So that's where we're at so far. It's in Dubois in the uh, Comfort Suites and Dubois Country Club. I'm very excited. We're still planning. We're still getting it all together, but that's what we have so far. And this is our comeback conference because we haven't had one in one, but we're working really hard to have an awesome conference so that we can kind of get back into doing that every year.
0: That is amazing news. <laughs> <laughs> and Thank you for sharing that with us. I can't believe it's been 11 years, Kathy. 11 years. I must have been at one of the last ones because that's right around when I started working. Uh, originally, I started working in this field at a consumer satisfaction team. And that's right around when when I would have been working for them. And I remember going to a PMHCA conference, but that's it's so hard to believe it's been that long. Been that long.
2: Well, then there was COVID. I came in 2019. I started at PMHCA and then there was COVID. So, so nobody did anything. And then you're trying to figure out, well, what do you do? So it's been, it's been a long time. Every single time I go out and talk to folks, they're like, when are you having a conference? I guess the conference that we used to have were epic, from what I understand. People loved them. So we're, we're going we're gonna to start bringing them back.
0: The one that I remember was pretty amazing. Yeah. <laughs> Just the energy. There were so many people and the energy there. It was uplifting. It was inspiring. I'll be there. Any final thoughts, Kathy?
1: So if I
2: could encourage anybody to do anything, it's find ways to to become advocates, ways to, to start kind of stirring the pot and making sure that we're heard.
0: Thank you. Becky, any last thoughts?
1: I guess what just struck me throughout this episode is just, I guess, the humble nature with which you advocate, Kathy, I think is very inspiring. I think a lot of people... Don't expect somebody who's willing to speak up to be as like open, honest, vulnerable, compassionate towards others as you are. So I know I've been complimenting you a lot in this episode, but I feel like <laughs> it's nice to, to sum it up that way. And I think you deserve a lot of credit for that because it is hard when you're speaking for so many people that feel like some level of oppression to not be like very forceful and angry and i don't think you come across that way at all so and i guess just i appreciate the pennsylvania mental health consumers association existing and continuing to do the work it does love everyone who works there and especially the ones that i know well yeah i'm just looking forward to continuing to work with you guys
0: i appreciate that Peggy. thank you (laughs) i want to thank you kathy for being here with us today We're always very appreciative of our guests and the time that they donate to be on our podcast and discuss these issues that are really important to the mental health system in Pennsylvania. I absolutely appreciate and admire the job that you've done as the leader at Pennsylvania Mental Health Consumers Association. I value the friendship that we have and the closeness of our organizations and how we work together. And I just look forward to what we can accomplish in the future to improve the mental health system and to improve the recovery-oriented system in Pennsylvania. Because I think if we work together with other organizations as well, we can make meaningful impact on the lives of individuals in Pennsylvania. I also want to throw out there that The Pennsylvania Mental Health Consumers Association and the Pennsylvania Peer Support Coalition will be working on a really exciting project that we're not quite ready to announce. But once we are able to talk about it, I hope that we can have Kathy back on to discuss because it is probably the thing that I am most excited about to work on over the next year or so. So please, everyone, stay tuned and watch for a future episode on that because it is really exciting news.
2: Revolutionary is what I'm going to call it.
0: Absolutely. So with that, I want to thank everyone for listening to this episode. We hope you enjoyed it. We hope you learned something. And we'll see you at our next episode. Thanks, guys. Thank you for listening to the Pennsylvania Peer Support Coalition podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Please be sure to listen to our other podcast episodes and to subscribe to our channel. If you need to contact the PAPSC, please feel free to do so by emailing us at info at PAPSC.org. Until next time.